0: I want you to open your Bible again tonight to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 16. We began a little study on developing a perfect heart. As I reflect back over the messages this year, two things stand out. And one is the Word of God, which I hope we always talk about. And secondly, is the condition of the heart that alone can receive the Word. If you don't hide the Word of God in your heart, there's nowhere else to hide it or to receive it. If we listen and listen and listen through all these years and we never really do what the Bible said, it's because we've convinced ourselves that we didn't really have to or something. And like James said, we deceive ourselves. But there's two things in this life that'll be so vital and necessary. Three things, actually. We'll talk about them Sunday. We started Sunday Sunday. That's the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. And what it produces is your faith, which brings all of this to light. That's what causes growth. As far as I'm concerned, it really can't get much better than that because it's what life is all about. Now, we're talking about developing a perfect heart. Here's what the Bible said that you well know in 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. Well, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself mighty or strong or powerful in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And we don't need to read the rest of it. Just want to take that that first half. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong, to show his might, And whoever he finds that has what he calls a perfect heart. And I think I said this last week, the problem with the powerless church today is a church that doesn't have a heart for the things of God. Oh, I think we all want it. I'm not accusing anybody of being so dismal. I'm just saying that the the things that God wants us to do and the way God wants us to live, you have to have a heart that really wants that. And while we read it and, and we read about how God responds to a perfect heart, as we look at our daily life and our daily situation and what we're facing and dealing with, we know there's a conflict there. I mean, the way God wants us to live, it's not easy. It's not just a simple little thing of doing it. While somebody may or I may be guilty of making it sound that simple, it's quite a struggle. God describes this as a war that we're in, a fight. A fight. The tempter is always trying to keep us from going forward. And consequently, we we struggle with our failures and weaknesses, and yet God keeps bringing us back, keeps loving us, keeps encouraging us, keeps giving us a second chance to hear again what you need to hear again because he that started the good work is the one who's going to finish the good work. Now, last time, just two or three things I said, let me pick up on that, and then we'll get started. God's strength is promised to us. God has promised us, like in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And just in the little book of Ephesians there, God gives us verses of Scripture that shows how he wants his might, his strength, and his power to be in us. That we not always lose the battles that we seem to lose, or we don't always come up short or back off a little bit afraid and not too willing to engage our enemy, and consequently, we, we don't always fare well. But we should because God has given us everything we need to win the battles of life, especially in one word, power. Turn to Ephesians 3. Let me not escape this moment. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Because the prayer that Paul started praying for the church, that would be us, in verse 17, he addresses us. And these are the things he prays that we will find and experience. And it comes down to verse 20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to what? The power that worketh in us. Who would that be? That would be God. Does in Philippians 3 talks about God is at work in you. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you know it's his good pleasure for you to be strong? That's Ephesians 6. Now we talked about that last week. And then mention what the word perfect means. Because the Bible says a perfect heart. When he finds a perfect heart. We said the word conveys the ideal of a whole or an undivided heart. A heart that is pointed towards, focused upon, receptive to God. You may not be perfect in all your choices and decisions, but you're on your way to live in the way God wants you to live if you give him your heart. And to give him your heart that way is to give yourself to him that way. And again, the devil has so many distractions, so many things that, demand this time in your life and you sometimes think you don't have time for God. Well, you have to take time for God. Your heart has to be totally centered on the Lord and his word. And it can be. It certainly can be because that's what God looks for. And when he finds it, our text said when God finds a heart that really wants the ways of God, I mean, it really works, starting to work at this, really desiring this. God said he will personally show his strength and might in that person isn't that what we all need and yet it's promised right there it is it's promised to us and we showed that there are men in the bible who had a perfect heart and then we mentioned one man amaziah second Chronicles 25 one of the kings he said he did that which was right in the lord but not with a perfect heart now, we, we can understand that because there's a lot of times we do the right things, we say the right things, or like in Isaiah 29, he said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart's not right before me. In other words, we do all these things. We sing the right songs with words that we're convinced were inspired by some songwriter or that glorified God. We pray, we read our Bibles, we do a lot of things. And we come to church to worship the Lord. And we go through the motions. But God says in the case of one of the reasons why he didn't receive all of that from his people was he said because your heart's not right. So everything's about the heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart. That's where it belongs. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to hide it, find its place in our heart and have its controlling effect right there upon our lives. And so the perfect heart, we ended up by saying that the perfect heart must be a pure heart. In order for your heart to be perfect, to be inclined towards God and be totally His, it has to be pure and purged. See, the Bible describes the heart in many different ways. The Bible describes hard hearts, wicked hearts, evil hearts, corrupt hearts, as well as good hearts and so forth. But when you you take the word heart and use another word to describe it, you're describing the person because as we just studied, what you are in your heart, you are in your life. So if your heart's right, you may not be a perfect individual yet and you may have all the weaknesses that you've got to overcome and deal with, but if your heart's right, you will god will see to it that you do and that you're going to so we ended there we were talking about hope-based faith that the the word in first peter 1 and verse 22 says that we we purify our hearts in obedience to the truth so as we attempt to walk the ways and live the way god wants us to live that's going to help bring purity and it does bring purity into our lives now tonight we must, therefore, seek to have a pure heart. I mean, we must desire that. That's what makes it perfect or makes it inclined and sincere towards God is for your heart to be perfect. In fact, if it's not, if it's not a pure heart, I don't know what kind of relationship anybody can have with God. But the psalmist said, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place well we think whoever belongs to church whoever goes to church and sings hymns and gives money and and helps build and fix and do and is a good member a member in good standing they surely will but no the bible said who shall stand in his holy presence but he answered he said he that hath clean hands and a pure heart he that hath clean hands in a pure heart, so we know that it's necessary to have a pure heart. But you've got to desire it. Now, to start tonight, turn to Matthew five, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five and verse eight. And then we'll go to the book of James, Matthew five and verse eight. One of the beatitudes that we studied a long time ago is: It says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for those that have a pure heart, those in whom purity is starting to come forth." He said, "Blessed are the pure." In heart, the sincere dedicated to God, honest heart, what's the promise to them? He said they shall see God. that's right, they shall see God. We're not talking about so much visually with the, in the natural but it will include that. but to see God is like Moses, Moses endured all that time in the desert because he saw him who is invisible well that doesn't make sense if you just go by natural English how can you see somebody who is invisible what's well, the spiritual thing so is this when your heart is right your heart is right towards God Wants to approach God. Wants to live right. Wants to do right. Seeks to learn. I want to know what it. Means. And you have that kind of a heart with the things of God. God will manifest Himself to you. You will begin to see what He wants. I think the psalmist, the psalmist said that with the pure in heart, God will show Himself pure. And the effect, I think, of seeing God like that is going to change your whole life. Nobody will have to tell you you need to do this or do that. You want to do it because uh, he showed me who he is. Now turn to James chapter 4 about this pure heart. James chapter 4 and verse 8. James is getting after them pretty good, I think, because of the way they live around each other, the way they're treating each other. You know, he even starts by saying, why, why are there wars and fightings and skirmishes among you? you I mean? You're the God's people and the very thing, one of the reasons God judges people is because of the way they treated each other. Injustice. God uses the word judgment, but it has to do with injustice. You're not fair. You're not right. And he said, why do these wars come from among you? And, and he says, you lust and you have not and blow on and so on and so forth. Then get down to verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and do what? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, double-minded is in contrast to purity. Would you agree with that? If a pure heart is a heart that belongs to God, longs for God, is sincere and honest towards God, then double-minded means not that. In other words, sinners are identified as double-minded people. Because he said, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, the double-minded are the sinners, those that aren't right with God. Didn't say they were trashed and discarded. He said, you can't live like that before God and do well. You've got to change. Now, the Greek word, d de- I-P-S-U-C-H-O-S. and I'm sure you all are impressed. Disuchos. The word sucos, this latter part of this, is a word for soul. The soul of a man. It also can refer to his mind. And it can also refer to his heart. But really, his mind. Because that's the seat of all your affections. People tell us that. How you think, your decision making characteristics, what affects the choices that you make, what affects all your decisions and how you're going to live, how you figure things out, how you work your way through things. It's all a product of your mind. And you'll either draw good conclusions or bad conclusions, but you're going to draw a conclusion. Now, a man lives by his mind because that's where his will, his volition or his will is also a part of this. And as we said in a previous study here, if the devil can get my will and make me willing to do what he convinces me is really what I ought to do, he controls me. Now, if I'm sitting in church and I want to have a heart for God, I really want to, I see the benefits of it, even though my life is so wrapped up in junk. I don't know. I really want to get out of it, and I really want to do right. And the problem is the devil's got a a hold on some people and on their minds. And they see the word is harsh. He shows you how weak you are, that you can't live that way. Remember, you tried this once, and it didn't work. I don't know how many people are held back because of the way they think. I mean, their minds don't function spiritually, divinely. It works with the spirit. But the devil deceived Eve by his subtlety, didn't he? For the Bible said he put into the mind of Eve the idea that God was afraid of competition and he didn't want her Uh to eat that fruit because if she did, she'd be like him. That's where we are today in the world. People see God like themselves. He's just another good old boy. He understands because, you know, and you're allowed to say to God in your prayer, look, I know I ain't doing right. I know I shouldn't be horsing around like I am or messing around, but, you know, I just, man, I can't help it. I mean, it's tough down here. And he got this idea of God. He says, I know what is. I know it is, but just do your best. Do your, I want to take you to heaven because you, because you try sometimes. People think like that. They don't need church anymore because they've got it figured out in in a way that they're all right with God. And then, of course, the church world is telling the heathen sinners how much God loves them. And God can do no more than love you. I mean, if he loves you, you, (laughs) what more is there that you're going to have than the love of God on your life? If he loves you, nobody's going to snatch you out of his hand. So people start thinking like that, and they're casual in their approach to church or religion, and their ideas are pretty corrupt, because the mind is corrupted. And so when you preach to them, they begin to think, well, you know, they evaluate themselves in light of the word. And the human experience tells me that nobody can live that way, but don't throw it away, but just keep, you know, the Bible's a moral book. Nobody can live like this, but there's good ideas in here. And you'd be surprised how liberal people are that think like that. I mean, this is ultra liberal when you think the way I've been describing. But people have all these excuses. They have all these substitutes, you know, and they do this, they do that. God said, this is the way walk in it. Man started to walk that way and realize how unpopular it was. He began to set aside some of the things of God and began to make it this this way. And for God's righteousness, he imposed his own. And because it works and everybody joins it and everybody likes it, he thinks he's going to get a great reward. And God says, depart from me. And the preacher that preaches that is so unloving and so kind. I know what people think. And yet it's clear, it's right there. Our minds really like being deceived. So that it doesn't have to be exactly the way God said it was. God's word is not easy until you get your heart right. When you get your heart right, easy has nothing to do with it anymore. You got no options anymore. He gives you a desire to do it his way. And if it costs you everything, praise the Lord. I'm glad I could do that. If you gain this or gain that, praise the Lord. But I, I belong to him anyway. My heart, my heart is God's. I count everything but loss just to know him. And the loss of all stuff down here that people live for and die for, fight for, lie for, and cheat for, I count it but dumb. If you the kind of heart a man can have and benefit and walk with God in a way that's not understood by a lot of people. But God says to the people who don't want to think right, there's a world full of them. I'm not talking about bad people. I'm talking about people that are fun to be around, nice people, helpful, friendly, and all of that. But when it comes to God, oh, my. Oh, my. So James says, draw nigh to God, and what will he do? How do you draw nigh to God? You can't draw nigh unless you have a perfect heart, but nobody's perfect, so how do I draw nigh to God? You can begin an approach to God. Imperfect as you are. Like the man who uh, said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember that? The publican. He drew nigh. He came to the end of his ropes. He saw the futility of his life. He was old enough at whatever age he was to look back at his life behind him, the way he had lived, and saw that there was nothing there that God would favor. Nothing he did was the way God wanted He didn't, so he turned to God. He said, God, I'm nothing but a sinner. And what did God tell sinners to do? He said, draw an eye to God, and he will draw an eye to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you folk who think wrong. And the reason you think wrong is you have a double mind. Now, this double mind is two minds. You got two minds. That's convenient, though. That's convenient if you're religious and liberal. If you're liberally religious, it's pretty convenient to have two minds because with one mind, man, you can hook up on Sunday, holy, holy, and you can do that thing. And then when you get out of church and and everything else starts coming back and the way you've been living all your life. You begin to make excuses because your mind, as I've already said, your mind begins to think like that. You're all right. you're not going to go to church your whole life, and then God rejects you. What kind of God do you serve man you're you're so far ahead of most people why do you have to try to be so perfect? nobody can be perfect. Ease up a little bit, have some fun, enjoy life a little bit. you're going to be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. so come on, man, take it. Well, the Bible said you can't think one side where you get convicted about God said this is the way walk in it and God shows you you're not walking that way. You say, man, you know, I know I am supposed to do that. And then you look over here and all the benefits of walking this other way and you know, you should, I, I like that and I want this and I want this. And I wish I could get away from that, but I... Oh, man. And so what you have here is a picture of an unstable man. He doesn't have a total allegiance to God. He may be a good person. She may be a good person. But their thinking apparatus doesn't allow them to make a single focused decision to give up whatever is between you and God and do it God's way. They have a problem doing that because they have a double mind. Let me ask you a question. How dangerous is a double mind? What kind of effect can it have on me in this life? Go to chapter one, because the same word is used again in James chapter one, and we find lo and behold, in James chapter one, double mind is a faith problem. It's a reason why there's not much active biblical faith in Christians, church members. If any man lack wisdom, he said in verse 5, let him ask of God. God gives liberally, doesn't he? He doesn't rebuke you for asking. But here's a condition that God sets forth for whoever wants to ask God for anything. I guess that would include your salvation, wouldn't it? You have to ask for that. I'll let you decide, but he said, but let him ask how? In faith, without doubting, without wavering. Wavering and doubting, same word. Now it gets real tight here, but it should because sin is a horrible thing for a man not to deal with. Sin is a horrible thing to tolerate and get along with in your life and get used to because it'll cut you off from God. You'll live a Christian life of some sort. You'll go to church and never realize even part of what God has for you. And the reason is there's no power in the church because the heart's not right. God said he shows you strength where the heart's right. Then he does things. Well, he said, but let him ask in faith without what? Wavering? For a man who wavers in the eyes of God, is a man who is uncertain, never sure. He has the ability to see things this way and see things that way. He has a mind for why it doesn't work and all those questions, and he also has a mind for what God said. He's not ruled by two minds. He's ruled by one mind because he can't do what God said. He can only be bothered by it. Because he lives according to his flesh. And he is a worldly man. And he cannot retain the word of God. Because a natural man cannot receive. Can he? Spiritual matters. He can't receive spiritual things. Because they're spiritually discerned. Or well, he might, somebody teach him and he can, for the moment there, he can say, you know, that is right. That is right. But then, boy, this other mind that he's been living by for so many years kicks in. The good old boy mind. The, oh, come on, man. Hey, man, you're all, come on, man. That type of mind allows you to cheat, lie, steal, run around, do things you shouldn't, go do a little drinking, do a little carousing. It can happen in a place like this. And as far as I'm concerned, if you want to do that, go somewhere else. So if a man lacks wisdom, lacks anything from God, let him ask God. God gives. He's the only one that can give in this case. But here's the deal. When you pray, you've got to believe. You've got to ask in faith. You've got to really believe that what you ask for, you have received before you see it. Because you won't believe it when you see it. You'll know it then. But you've got to believe it until you see it. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's always future. Never yet manifested, but you're believing it. But let him ask in faith without wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And what's the seventh verse say? Let not that man think. And he doesn't. And he can't. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Because doesn't the devil tell him you're, you're not good enough? You haven't been Christian long enough? You mess up too much? You're too weak? You, and therefore, there's no reason for you to think anything's going to happen because he can't. I mean, that's one of the devil's weapons. It contributes to your doubt and unbelief, but that's the way the devil works. In your mind. That's where doubt is. Faith is a choice I make. So is doubt. Everything I do is a choice. But the Bible says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything. Then he spells out in the eighth verse why a man should never think he's going to receive anything from God if he doesn't believe. What's wrong with a man? In verse eight, what's his problem? He's a double-minded man, isn't he? Same word. He is a two-minded man, and therefore he is unstable in all of his ways. God couldn't count on him. God can't depend on him. God cannot equip him to serve him because he won't let go of the world. He keeps seeing the opposition to God. He's full of questions of God. Well, how could this be? Well, nobody can do that. That's too hard. I, I just, and as long as he's like that, he can't believe God. He can say he believes God. You can go to church and sing all about faith and listen to good sermons and compliment the message if you want to. That doesn't mean you believe it. Because to believe it is to live it. And to live this life is to fight all the opposition you're going to have to it because the devil does. You see, when you get into the faith realm, the devil loses you. Because the way the Bible says you specifically resist the devil is by faith. 1 Peter 5 tells us the devil goes about as a roaring lion. Remember that? Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may desire who resists firm or steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same kind of problems are happening to all your brothers. Just stay with it. Don't give up. Just stay with it. The fight and the journey is a long one. It's a hard one. It's not easy. Don't look back. You can't look back. If you look back, you're going to miss it. You want your heart right, it has to all belong to God. The demonstration of your heart is that you you trust Him, you believe in Him, and you hold on to Him, even though it never looks like it's going to work. This is never going to come to pass. You're going to lose everything. This is crazy. You're going to die from this. And yet there's something in you that says, I'm going to trust the Lord. That's all I know to do. I'm going to trust in the Lord with all of my heart. Because the heart, folks, the heart is a secret. If the heart's right, you're right. If the heart is not right with God, the heart will say, well, you know, I know God could. Maybe biblically trained. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. You know, God has in, in history and down through the centuries, God said, it's easy to say what God could do. But how many people trust him? If you still have your Bible over, look in the middle of your Bible to the right. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the bushes, or shrubbery in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land. That's the way so many Christians live. They're just living a parched life. Maybe that'll be another sermon title, A Parched Life. It's not a happy sermon, though, is it? But let me go back and say this again, because I want to make a point of this. I wanna, while you're watching and you're listening, and we haven't hit that half, half an hour point yet. Let me, let me make a point again here. This is it. He said, cursed is the man that trusts in man, that maketh flesh his arm. Uh, probably here referring to going back to Egypt to escape the Assyrians and the conquering Babylon. All of those things that Isaiah prophesied and Jeremiah said, you're going to spend 70 years over there. Cursed is the man that trusts in man and maketh flesh his arm. Now, through the years, we've used that to condemn and maybe got it right a few times about trusting in the arm of the flesh. That you should trust God instead of the arm of the flesh. And and that's true. But I think you can take that a point further than what God intended for that to be understood as. If I take my car to the garage to have uh, oil changed or something repaired or a part replaced, I guarantee you I'm taking my car to the arm of the flesh for help well then let it just lay hands on your car and say no man's going to touch us this, this car God's going to fix this car and that has happened but most of us take our car to the garage and have the old chain or do it our, ourselves because we believe we should or that's the way they're going to get maintained well or fixed well but trusting in the arm of the flesh You know, some refer that to going to doctors and not letting God have your body and heal you like that. That could be true, too. I think everybody has a place where you are in your walk. Everybody knows where you are, and perhaps we'll all come to the same thing. I know with some of us, it's a deeper conviction about who has a part in the good things in our life. I want God to get all the glory. I do. I was thinking today about how many years ago it was the last time I sat in a dental chair. See, I'm a crybaby. When it comes right down to it, I'm just a baby. I remember 1966 was the last time I was in there, and I can shut my eyes and still hear it. Zzzz! And then it, when it hits something, it goes, zzzz! Zzzz! You got to like the sound effects, but I remember sitting in that chair. Ah! Course you can't make a noise, and you sure enough be a crybaby. I can still hear that. One part of your brain thinks, If I ever get out of here, I ain't ever coming back. And the Lord Savior comes on the scene, a lot of words come to pass, things come forward, and, and people say, Well, you believe it's all right to go have And I said, You do what you believe. I guarantee I can look in a mirror and say, Boy, you could stand a whole lot of. Who knows, maybe it'll come to that. I don't know, never has, but maybe it will. I sometimes think, you know, being a pastor representing a congregation of people, sometimes visitors come and they introduce themselves to me and I would sure hate for one to go home and say, oh, he's from Kentucky. (laughs) But on the other hand, you have to, everybody has to, go into his own valley, find his own closet, make his own decision because where's your heart in all this? You can't do what's in my heart nor I yours, but you got to do what's in your heart to do because that's what God requires of us. You don't live on my terms, I don't live on yours. But you've got to live somewhere. And sometimes a drive in your heart is, I just want this to be right with God the way he would be pleased with it to be. I want it that way. Because that's what's in your heart to do. And a man who doesn't want to do that, doesn't have a desire to even think about doing that, it might be like in verse 5, his heart's departed from the Lord. I'm going to look for something else. In this case, I'm going to look for something else besides that. It might be like that. I can't make it just black or white here about what a man should do. All I can do is tell you that the Bible says, curses a the man that trusts in the arm of the flesh. He, he ends it by saying, whose heart departeth from the Lord. I believe there are a lot of people who have gone to doctors who didn't wanna go. I mean, it was, came down to this and that or that and more involved than in just your life or, I mean, there's more involved. And at the last moment or so, they went and had something done. And a lot of people think got condemned or get condemned over that. I don't care what kind of mistakes any of us have, have made. You can get your heart right. If it hasn't been right, you can get it right. If you think you've done something wrong, you can get it right. You can get it right. It's between you and the Lord. That's what God wants from you. But let me get the rest of this. A man whose heart departs from the Lord is just going to be a dead soldier in the jungle for the rest of his life. Nothing's going to work for you. Verse seven, though, blessed is a man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he will be like a tree planted by the waters that spreads out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat comes, but her leaf shall be green. And shall not be careful or anxious in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit come to this conclusion in verse, verse nine the heart is deceitful the heart not only is deceitful but other translations says the heart is crooked is desperately wicked the heart Let me say this to you, you can't fix it, it's fatal. The condition of the human heart is unfixable, it's fatal. You can't make an evil heart right, it has to be replaced. A man must get a new heart and a new spirit and get rid of his old heart. Remember Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 11, I will give him a new heart i give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll take away the evil heart and give you a heart that will believe me. That's the work of God. That's when your life changes. That's when things begin to fall in place, the little things and, and things begin to make sense. That's when you begin to have hope. And the more you surge forward in faith, the more your heart, as 1 Peter 1 says, gets purified, gets cleaned out. And there's room, there's more room for God in a heart like that. More room for his word to have its effect there than in other places. You no longer have that, Hebrews 3, that evil heart of unbelief. Because when God gives you a heart of faith, you got a new heart. Now you kept your old mind. Remember that? But you've got a new mind too. You've got the mind of Christ in you. And you got a war between here and there, 18-inch war. Boy, the bullets are big ones, the bombs are big. But it's a war. And you got no choice but to fight the good fight of faith in this life. There's the only way you can win. So we're told right here that if you got to have a pure heart. There's got to be a willingness to trust in the Lord. To do the things that God wants you to do simply because he wants you to do it. And it's the world that's hardened us. Mark 10. Would you go to Mark 10? So many things to see in here. And verse 5. They asked him about divorce here. And they said to Jesus, well, Moses suffered him to write a bill of divorcement and to put away his wife. They gave her one, you know, if there was a reason why you could do that, and Moses allowed that. What about now? I mean, you're saying no. What about the exception clause that we hear of so much? What about the innocent party thing that we hear about so much? Listen to what Jesus said. Verse five, and Jesus answered and said to them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this. Now stop. Now I don't want to get off subject here, but this is a good place to make a point. Why did Moses allow his people to divorce? Jesus said Moses allowed that, didn't he? He often spoke to to his people and said, in your law it says, well, he said here for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But verse six says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So then they that are no more two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, That's pretty clear to me. That excuse exception thing is because of the condition of the heart that doesn't want to do it God's way. I don't want to get married for life. What if she's a nag? What if he's a worse? I want to be able to get out. I mean, everybody does. God said not from the, not from the beginning. When God put two together as one, he intended for them to stay one. He didn't make that provision. Man made that provision, and they're still doing it today. Still arguing for it, debating over it. Follow me some more. And then they went into the house, and his disciples came in again. Because they're really touched by that. What what are you saying? Verse 11, and he said unto them, look, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and he be married to another, she committeth adultery. That's all he said. I don't think it can be any more simple than that. But the problem is here, the debate rages over one thing, the condition of the heart. If a man marries a woman and he says from his heart at the vows, I will love you, keep you, so on and so forth, is he supposed to mean that? Now, what if he doesn't, what if he doesn't do that? What if he lives another way and walks away from it? Is it not because his heart's not right? Would you agree? Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. I would think you would. It's a heart problem. It's a problem with your heart. God said, but you don't want to do it that way anymore because that's that double mind. It goes another direction. You begin to reason within yourself. Well, after all, I mean, why should I stay single? And, you know, he left me and he got married again. I don't think I should have to pay the price. And so forget about the fact that you entered into a covenant. That if you want to be faithful to God, you've got to keep your covenant, keep your end of the deal. God may save him and bring him back, and you won't have to break up anything to receive him back or her back. So the heart is what it's all about. Make one more point tonight and turn to uh, Psalms 57. Your heart must be fixed. I remember years ago, I don't know much about the drug culture. I never did that stuff. That was the generation after me that started all that. But uh, I remember they used to talk about getting a fix. Is that, is that the right way to say that? If you're under 40, you probably know what I'm what I'm talking about. Well, the same thing is true with the Lord. Get a fix. Psalms turn Psalms 57, Psalms 112. Psalms 57 to verse 7 and Psalms 112. And verse 7 my heart verse 7 Psalms 57 verse 7 my heart is fixed oh God my heart is fixed I will travail and complain and I'll try but Lord it's hard down here anybody said is it listen to me my heart is not focused on my circumstances and my condition. My heart is not focused on I'm a victim and this is not fair. My heart is not certainly not focused on political properness. I could care less about that. So what's your heart focused on? On the Lord. I mean, whatever he says, that's what I'm going to believe. Whatever he directs me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And when it comes like the Psalm 112, wow, what a psalm. He says in verse 4, he said, Unto the upright in heart there ariseth light and darkness. We'll come back later to that. Because God is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. If he doesn't give you light when dark times are here, you won't see where you're going and you won't make it. But he will. He'll open your eyes and you can see his way. Verse 7. He will not be afraid. Who is he? The man that fears the Lord, verse verse one. The man whose strength is in God, whose desire is for God. And he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. That's bad news. Broadcast in the paper and all the stuff that people shouldn't be caught up in so much. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Why? His heart's fixed. His heart is fixed. How? In what way is his heart fixed? Trusting in the Lord. Lord. God will take care of this, won't He? Can God take care of the world's problems right now? Really, in the situation that's in the world, you're the focus of God. God's going to take care of you. You're the one that He's interested in. All these other things, nothing. They're nothing. I read Isaiah 41 the other morning. It's a chapter that just glorifies the majesty and the might and the greatness of God. Meeting out the world in, like in dust. And the universe which is nothing. The creation of all of that and the all the things that scientists are trying their best to find out about were as nothing to God. His might and his power is beyond understanding and yet he condescends to dwell in your heart to make sure that you make it to heaven. In such a way that at judgment, at judgment day you'll be different from everybody else. If you're not, then you, then you won't make it. But you'll be different from everybody else because God will say then, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He won't say that to everybody, but he'll say that to the redeemed. Because God is able to go on the human heart and transform it. Turn it completely around. And make it the way it ought to be so that when he's through working in it, he will say to the world, these are mine you're not even worthy of these people. This is what God has done in human beings that were unlovely to the world, unacceptable to the world. He took those kind of people, us, transformed them into the kind of people that the world can only envy but can't be like. That's how great God is. And the, act, the fact that he would pick you and me, that's amazing. And I hope we can all tonight look back over the years and see some good progress. I can see some good progress, how God has done this and how God has done that. My heart is fixed. Oh, to say it like this, in my own words, my heart is focused. It's focused on God and His way. But what if I do if I can't find things? I go to God and ask Him to show me where it is. Well, if I can't make something work right, I pray it. And ask God to help me fix something. I work on little parts and pieces every now and then. and Certain things and fixing things and putting things together. And sometimes. Ugh, and you just stop because you've been taught. And you say, why don't you ask God to help you do that? And I don't think this ever fail. Okay, Father in Jesus name. There's a little tension coming here. I rebuke it. Ask you to help me make this right and fix it. So I don't go through this. He does. I like that. That's his power. Amen. That's his might. Keeps me from being stressed out. Keeps me from talking to other people. I'll tell you what I Keeps me from doing that. Because when bad news comes, I got some good news. Amen. When trouble comes, I got some relief. It's not Tom's either. I've got something else. Praise oh. God. Now, go to Matthew 6, and we'll come to a close. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22. Again, the Sermon on the Mount. Admittedly, commentators say these two verses are not easy to understand. Jesus said the light of the body is the eye. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now, the word single, a Greek word, which means to fold. It's like a single fold over. Not difficult. It's just something very simple. But they use that word. It says, if your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. Now, one thing we do know, that my eyeball and my eyes, both of them, are not connected light bulbs on the inside of my body you could not hook up some gadget that's probably made today and stick it down in my body and, and see my liver and all this kind of stuff. you couldn't see it with a light bulb i'm sure they got machines that can do about all but he's not talking about natural light here He's talking about something spiritual how you see things is how you're going to conduct all your affairs you're, you're going to live in this body in a way that you define things. If you see a lot of things that you're fearful of, you're not certain of, you don't think you can cope with, it scares you, you're going to live a fearful life because the way you see things is a way of fearful. And you'll be insecure. There are a lot of insecure people. They're not convinced that they themselves are of any value, that they can't do anything, that Nobody would care and I'll probably fail anyway and they blame it on the way they were raised, a divorce of their parents or a traumatic this or something in school. But it comes down later on in your life to a choice. It just comes down to a choice. How I look at things tonight in closing, how I look at the world, how I view things, it's how, how I see things. It's a kind of light that comes to me that is going to determine within me the kind of choices that I make. You think about it. If you're weak morally, what kind of choices are you apt to make? Bad ones. And what kind of excuses are you apt to make? Couldn't help it. Now, that's a lie. You could help. In fact, you encourage it and you fulfilled it. But that's the way you see it. The educational system has given you insight as to how to properly conduct your affairs in this world. If you're smart in this world, then you will do this and arrange for that and try to find that and make sure of this. Because that's the way you've been shown. This is the way you've been taught. Words create pictures and they come in and this. This is the way you see things. They become strongholds in your life because they prevent God, as I said earlier about your mind, they prevent God from having his way because they become excuses. So Jesus saves a man, gives a man a new heart, turns you to God. And for the first time in your life, here comes truth. And truth doesn't get to just grab your will and do it because the old mind said, well, don't do that and that thing starts over again. This is when you have to fight the good fight. This is when you have to be willing to embrace God at the expense of being ridiculed, rejected, not getting what you thought you would get. You just gotta make a big deal out of it. You just gotta say, God, I'm gonna do it your way. I'm gonna trust you. That's the way you live. But you gotta keep your eyes single. Where the eye is single, it sees things the way God wants you to see it. It's almost back to a double-minded man versus a single-minded man. The mind is where you store information. You have, sometimes called the heart, you have eyes in your heart, don't you? The eyes of the heart. Only by revelation from God can the eyes of your heart see what God is saying. Now, if you take that word that God is showing you and you hide that word in your heart, then we hope you become single-minded. Single-minded means that uh, I have a mind for God, not for God in the world, not for God in options. I've decided, like I was telling you a while ago, about my own life and decisions I've made, I'll just take God at his word and let, and let him fix things that are not right and, and, and leave it up to him. Unless I'm missing something, I'll just let him do it. I mean, he's big enough to do that. There's not a thing in this room he can't fix. There's not a problem in this room that he can't solve. There's not an infirmity or a disease or a problem, a physical, anything that he cannot fix, Nothing. It's all there. And maybe all of that exists in our lives so that we can get all of this in our heart, let our faith put it out there, and then experience his healing. So praise the Lord, we have a testimony about that now. Instead of spending the rest of our lives wondering why it doesn't work. It's a heart problem. Because when the heart's right, the power's right. But when the heart's right, the heart is single. If your eye is single, you can make a lot out of this. There's an evil eye of unbelief and the covetous evil eye. But when your eye is single, I think it's telling us that you see things God's way. You're committed to what he said and rejecting all these other strongholds in your life. No, I won't do it that way. If God said this is the way, walk in it, that's the way it's gonna be. Like in verse 24 there, he said, uh, you know, you can't serve two masters. You have to make up your mind. You're going to go through this world. the rest of chapter six. He said, take no thought five times. You can't worry about things if you believe God's going to take care of it. It's, It's the way you look at life. It's the way you are evaluating yourself in light of everything in this world. The world will defeat you every time. But when you see yourself seated in heavenly places with the Lord. God working inside of you, able to do exceeding abundance above all. When you see yourself that way, you not only can cope, but you can cope joyfully. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we give you thanks tonight for your lordship, for your might and your strength and how you have shown it Throughout the ages and let us read it and have it in our hearts as our own. We as a church, Lord, need your power and your might in our lives to fix things, sort things out, repair things. I pray that we can experience this year, especially lots of testimonies of the Lord's power in our life and what the Lord has done in restoring and fixing and making and doing and keeping and solving. Thank you for your word. Bless these people with their hearts and minds to have a great portion of it operating every day. As much as they've learned, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.